it's almost like a new period of human history, like the Enlightenment, will imagine an entire design renaissance. So the internet is not evolving at random. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make. Tech companies are actually taking over the world, and they're doing it with our government's help. Uh, so everybody acknowledges that these are valuable entities. They provide value in our life. Government does nothing as well or as economically as the private sector of the economy. But there's also seems to be a growing awareness that they have become so big that they have too much power now. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and is gravely to be regarded. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today we're coming back for the second episode in this kind of coronavirus special that I'm doing here amongst the interviews for the beginning of season two and I'll be covering more things that are relevant, um, that are both relevant to current events now with the coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever, and all the things that are going down in society around the world really and also things that are relevant, the exact same things, to what I've been talking about for season two regarding mostly the shift towards technocracy and some of the things that would have to fall in place and shifts that would need to happen for us to get further down that road, and those things are starting to play out. So since they are, and since I have already begun to talk about some of these things, I will get into them further. So last episode, I kind of introduced more of an overview, gave my opinion. It was felt a little jumbled, I guess. There's a lot of different things and a lot of different angles, but I kind of wanted to lay the groundwork for how I'm thinking about it. And then this episode, I'll try to focus more on more of like a sociology side of things. How is it affecting individuals and the social psyche as a whole and different things related to that? And then in the next episode, I'll get into more of the systems and institutions and things like the monetary system and government changes and shifts in power and corporations and all that kind of stuff. So I'll start off by clarifying something that I may have also clarified last episode. I really don't remember exactly, but I I will be talking about things that are conspiratorial and that are involving those powers that shouldn't be that are up on high making lots of decisions and steering the world. And in some ways, that is very true. And in other ways, that's not exactly how it's going. So I want to try to clarify this. I don't necessarily believe that there is a person or a group at the top that's that developed COVID-19, released it in certain areas for certain reasons, is controlling the response by governments and corporations, and is really a puppet master to the entire situation. That is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that there are groups that have planned for this type of event, this exact type of event, and they have planned out what would happen in that scenario, and they have used those war game scenarios to see what the reaction of individuals and countries would be, and therefore, how could they use 
this scenario and maybe not this exact scenario, or maybe they knew that they would release this. I don't know if anybody in particular is behind this or if it just escaped out of a lab or if it developed naturally. I honestly do not know at all. But the point is that there are these people and groups, things like the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, World Health Organization, the UN, places like this that have simulated these things before. They know roughly what the, or at least they have tried to figure out what the effect would be, how people would react, how this would play out. And so that is something that has been planned. Now, again, whether or not that means that they planned to specifically and intentionally release a novel coronavirus, I really don't know. It's possible, but maybe not. I really have no idea. But what I am saying is that they have planned for this scenario, and they have planned what to do in this scenario to take full advantage. Number two, groups that want a lot of power and want to steer societies and the world and specific countries, whatever the case may be, they will take advantage of every crisis. Never let a crisis go to waste. When there is a crisis, there is opportunity, and they take full advantage of that. And especially if you've already planned ahead for the eventuality of a crisis, then that becomes a lot easier to take full advantage of that. Now, another aspect would be the situation that already existed before this crisis hit. So like I had talked about in other episodes, the economy was already in a giant bubble that was going to pop. There were already a lot of shifts that were going on. There were a lot of movements going on around the world that were anti-establishment movements and anti-government movements. Think of Hong Kong and uh, Catalonia and... You even had Italy kind of buck the EU a little bit when they took their democratically elected president out and put in an EU unelected technocrat. And some people in Italy didn't really like that very much. You also have Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders as two of the most popular politicians in America. Very anti-establishment as well, depending on how you look at that. But the point is, these things have already been brewing. They already existed. And this is more of a controlled demolition of the economy and of the current order. But that doesn't necessarily mean, again, that someone intentionally created this virus and released it on purpose and is orchestrating everything. It more just means that things were going to fall and people wanted the economic order to shift, the world order to shift, political orders to shift, um, powers between institutions to shift. This is already something that was trending. This is already something that was wanted. If you look at trends throughout history and cycles in history, this is the way things play out. And so with this current coronavirus outbreak and the crisis that's gone down and the way all of this is playing out, it is being used as the event to make sure that these things are either progressing or that they happen completely. I don't know as of this point, I'm still in the middle of this, so I don't know how it will play out, obviously. But either it's another step forward or many steps forward, or it is the shift to the whole thing. But The coronavirus is what is being credited as the reason for the global economy crashing, even though, as I've already mentioned before, it was going to crash already. The coronavirus is also the reason given for authoritarian control being instituted around the globe, even though you've had the police state that's been brewing where local police departments have been getting tanks and 
anti-mine vehicles and all kinds of ex-military gear. And all of this stuff has happened already. You also have the political shifts where you've already had some cities that are rejecting what states have said and states rejecting what national governments have said and national governments rejecting what some global institutions have said, just like EU and Brexit. All of these things are already happening. So when we see them continue to happen, it's not because of the coronavirus. That's not why these things started. But the coronavirus will be used and is being used as the reason why they are progressing and why they are continuing, whether or not that is actually the case or not. And what I believe is that it kind of is and it kind of isn't. The coronavirus is a separate thing from these shifts and the environment that already existed, but it is getting used as the catalyst event, the catalyst crisis, to make sure that these shifts actually take place and end up happening. I'll now get into some of the ideas that are being more reinforced in society as these things are happening and as the coronavirus is taking its toll and as the overbearing reaction by governments is really cracking down. There are a lot of things that are changing in society and the way people look at society and look at other people and look at institutions and the way they interact with people and interact with their own governments, local and national And all of these things are changing, how they're working, all of this stuff. So I want to talk about some of those things, and specifically in relation to the things that I've already been talking about in this podcast and have talked about in season one as well. Those are the things that I'm highlighting. So I'm not necessarily going over everything, but I'm going over the things that are relevant. So one of the things that I've talked about that people I have discussed these ideas with and people I've been interviewing, one of the things that have been a bit of a hang-up for them is that they don't see how people would get on board with some of these ideas that I'm saying are coming, some of these shifts that I'm at least claiming are going to happen. People think that in general, the public is not going to go along with that, and that's going to be a big issue. Well, I believe that during this crisis, there's a lot of changes that are happening with individuals and the way people think, the way people view governments and different roles of different institutions and society, that type of stuff, that is getting people more and more on board. Now, people are already a lot more on board than they once were. Look at America having probably about 50% of voters being okay with socialist-type policies. If you really want to get down to it, both the Democrats and Republicans are using socialist-type policies. And so, yeah, most people are on board, at least to some degree, with those types of things. But with these shifts that are going on now and the current crisis, these are they're increasing the amount that people are okay with is increasing the amount of uh, government intrusion, government regulation, um, handing over responsibility to corporations, relying on scientists and experts, all these types of things. One of the other big reasons why I believe people will jump on board with this is that this crisis is showing, similar to how climate change has, that individuals are unwilling to act voluntarily. And that is a big problem. If there is an outbreak, a virus that's going around, it's a pandemic, it's a plague, whatever it is, and individuals will not take the responsibility on themselves to stay apart, to do social distancing, to only go out when it's necessary, these types of things. Maybe companies and small businesses refuse to 
shut down their business or to implement certain measures. And so they are not taking on that responsibility. It's similar to climate change. You have the same deal where people aren't willing to recycle or they're not willing to cut down on eating meat or whatever it is that you want to go with. All of these solutions to climate change are ones that most individuals are at least not on board with some of them. They're not willing to do them all. And so if individuals are unwilling to act voluntarily, then the only alternative to that is forcing them to act in a certain way. So if people in general believe that the pandemic is something that is very crucial to address, which it very well may be, or if people believe that climate change is the similar example I'm drawing on here, is something that is very important to be addressed, then necessarily you would have to force people and businesses to act a certain way to comply because the way we see in reality, the way things play out, people are not willing to make all those changes themselves. Now, as I discussed in season one with the education system, I would argue that much of the reason why people do not use self-sufficiency, personal responsibility, critical thinking, all these things is something that was put on to them, something that is an intentional shift in society over the decades, and I explained why and all that stuff. So I would say that this is not a natural evolution, that the natural thing to do would be for individuals to want liberty and to have responsibility and to build relationships. Those are the things that are natural to humanity, that is my argument at least, and I believe that that's pretty much the opposite of what we have and what we are continuing to have. The trend now is not towards more liberty. It is towards more socialist-type policy, more government control, more forced action. The trend is not towards personal responsibility. It's towards entertainment, convenience. It's not about doing what you need to do for yourself and your family and your country even. It's about doing whatever's best and makes you feel good and whatever you're going to enjoy for a limited amount of time. That is generally the focus. And with this, people are much more selfish. They're much more self-centered. Social media makes people a lot more self-centered in many different ways. And so with that, you have fewer close and intimate relationships. People aren't building relationships as much. You send a text message instead of a phone call, which had actually replaced in-person conversations when people would actually drop by your house and talk to you and uh, do whatever it is you're doing. You're doing some chores. Someone will come over and talk to you and you might have a drink and then do your chores together and just hang out. They have their kids over there. They play with your kids, you know, all this stuff. This used to be fairly commonplace. It used to be very commonplace to have families getting together on a very regular basis. But nowadays, that's not that's not as common. Same with just friendships in general. There's a lot more text messages and social media messages and emojis and pictures and videos and all these things that get sent around. And that is taking the place or has taken the place in many ways of person-to-person close relationship building, much less any sort of community. It used to be that local communities were fairly close. You knew at least one or two people that grew vegetables or that had a farm and you could get beef from or you could get eggs or milk from or whatever the case may be. That's food, but it's the same with lots of other types of things. Someone that worked on cars or someone that worked on other things. But nowadays, people generally just do a search 
online. And then whatever companies pop up, those are the ones that they realize are in their area and that they might go to. They read some reviews and then they make their choice. That is much less relationship-oriented than things used to be. A lot of that is because of technology. A lot of that is an efficiency gain, an effectiveness gain to a degree. And like many other things, there are positives, there are negatives. Oftentimes, I talk about technocracy from a perspective of arguing for technocracy and why it would work so well and why people would be on board with it, even though truly, that is not my opinion. I'm more against technocracy, and sometimes I argue against those ideas and those types of systems. But the reality is that there are pros and there are cons. It's just like any other system. It's just like any other thing. Technology is the same way. I've done multiple episodes where I've talked about some of this stuff. And so I do believe that society as a whole, the general social consciousness, however you want to describe it, is definitely at a place where they're open to a lot of these shifts that I've been discussing, and that is increasing. And the rate of increase is increasing as well and growing faster with a crisis. Crises crises always do that. And so that is something that is happening. One of these shifts that I've been talking about is the increase in automation with technology. There's less of a reliance on relationships. Like I just said, there's less of a reliance on employees for businesses. There is a great focus on efficiency. And these are things that are, again, good things in many ways. But there are major shifts that come with that as people start using that in their everyday lives. And the younger generations are growing up with that being the norm, just like younger generations that have grown up with Homeland Security and TSA and the Patriot Act. And they don't remember any time when there wasn't a TSA agent at the airport and giant security lines and this whole government department of Homeland Security that protects our nation. People don't remember that. The younger generation does not because they weren't around. Now that's normal. That definitely was not normal a few decades ago before 9-11. So things get normalized, they become normal, and then things can progress from there. That's one step accomplished, moving on to the next. And that's kind of the way things work. With this coronavirus going on, a lot of people are working from home. You've got the social distancing deal going on and lots of things like this where people are not interacting very much. So again, it's just kind of reinforcing these trends that have already existed, but it is making them much more concrete. And this is something that I think will have a lasting impact on us as communities and as nations and as a society. And I do think that this gets us further along this path that I've been discussing, these shifts that are going on. Uh, To get a little more specific about a specific thing, there was an initiative that I want to talk about, the Global ID Initiative, and that is ID 2020. And this is a big initiative to get everyone around the world with an ID, with an identification that is online, that is probably going to be on a blockchain, not necessarily a private decentralized blockchain, but blockchain nonetheless. So they use the hype word and it really doesn't mean much. And so... With this initiative, the ID2020, I picked this one out because it's getting pushed a lot and it has a lot of very prominent backers that I have discussed many times in other episodes. And so I wanted to highlight that. The other reason I wanted to highlight this one is because the early literature on technocracy from back in the 30s 
talked about how people needed to be identified. Everyone needed to have an ID. We needed to be able to collect data on everyone. We needed to track consumption and production and be able to do all of this stuff in near real time. Now, back in the 30s, obviously, that was not something that was very possible. That was a little more sci-fi, but uh, this is the technocracy movement. That's what they said needed to happen, and they believed they could accomplish that. Well, today, that seems much more realistic. That is definitely something that could be accomplished. It's just that people wouldn't be on board with a government tracking absolutely everything they do, where they are, what they spend money on, what they buy, where they go, who they see, who they talk to, what they talk about, what their emails consist of, all these things. People in general are not cool with that. Although, as I've discussed, they are much more on board with that than they once were. It is a trend and it is changing. And with this global ID, that is just one piece of the puzzle that would enable something like a technocratic system to take hold. If you had everyone around the world with a specific ID tied to a specific blockchain, then everything they do, let's say vaccine records is one that is getting pushed a lot, especially with a virus pandemic that's going around. So if your vaccine records was tied to your international ID, then when you go to the airport, you show your international ID, they pull it up on the blockchain and it says what you've been vaccinated for. If you have not been vaccinated for the specific things that the destination you're wanting to go to requires, then you're not allowed to go to that destination. You can't board your plane or whatever it is that you're doing. And this is a bit of a problem. If the government deems you or whoever is in charge of the system deems you as someone who should not buy a certain food, then if you show your ID because you probably have some sort of digital wallet because yeah, the digital dollar is something else I'll talk about as well. But if you show your ID for that and use your digital wallet that's tied to your digital ID, then that could be shut off. You could be not allowed to purchase certain things or certain services. And there's a lot that could be done with this. This creates the ability to totally manage production and consumption and activity within a given area, within a given region, whether that be geographically or politically or whatever you want to organize society as. So now that you see kind of how this ties into technocracy and what their original plans were, and I'm sure you could see how this ties into sustainable development, the new version of technocracy as well. Well, I'll go ahead and mention some of the names. So I looked up this initiative, the ID2020. I'd heard about it on another podcast and pulled it up and kind of looked at their official website and looked at the partners associated with this initiative. So who's on board with this? Well, you've got people like Microsoft. That is one of the biggest corporations in the world. So definitely your international megacorp is represented, also led by Bill Gates, who we've talked about many times, major eugenicist. If you have not listened to the episode on eugenics, please go back and do so. That is very important. And that is one of the key ideologies behind a lot of these things I've been discussing. Even though it's in the background and I may not bring it up a lot, that is something that is a very key driver to all these things. So you've got Microsoft, you've got the Rockefeller Foundation. Again, I shouldn't need to go into detail about them. I have definitely talked a lot about the Rockefeller Foundation. The other one that was interesting, so there are two more. There's one global management company that I recognize the name, but I didn't really know very well. And so I didn't pursue that very far. And then there's one other company that is more of a consulting company as well that's international corporation. And I didn't pursue them much either because there were three that I definitely did recognize and I focused on them. So you have Microsoft with Bill Gates, you've got the Rockefeller Foundation, and you've got one called the Gavi 
Vaccine Alliance. And with this, I wasn't quite sure what that was, but the tie to vaccines and digital um, IDs and the current crisis with the virus, all of this does tie together and it does fit in with the technocracy narrative, as I have uh, previously mentioned. And so I went ahead and went to the Gavi Vaccine Alliance website and pulled that up. And then also, so I read some of the brief descriptions on their website and what they do, and I flipped over to their partners. And they also had an interesting list of partners there full of names that I have talked about many times before. Uh, one that I haven't really talked about much is UNICEF. That's one that you can do your own research on. They have plenty of uh, sketchy things in their background, although they actually do many good things, just like all of these. The Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, they do very good things for society. They're big charities, and they help people, but there's definitely a darker side and more conspiratorial side, and again, I've discussed this many times in the past. Go back and listen to those, but the other ones that uh, stood out a little more were the Gates Foundation is one of the leaders of the Gavi Vaccine Alliance. You are seeing the Gates Foundation come up a lot in all of this stuff. They are basically playing the role that the Rockefeller Foundation did a few decades ago when a lot of these shifts in our education system, our monetary system, the Federal Reserve coming up, these types of things were happening. The Rockefeller Foundation or the Rockefeller family, David Rockefeller in particular, in particular, he started the Trilateral Commission, among many other things. Council on Foreign Relations was a founding member, part of the Society of the Elect, that um, that group that Cecil Rhodes started, and just tied into all these different things. Well, nowadays, you see Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation tied into a lot of similar things involving steering society, guiding society, doing a lot of things behind the scenes, uh, heavily focused on tracking, data collection, surveillance, eugenics, um, all of these more socialistic type policies and management, uh, something more aligned with a technocracy type solution than a, a typical political solution. And so they are definitely filling this role here. So with the Gavi Vaccine Alliance, you got UNICEF, the Gates Foundation, you've got the World Health Organization, who's also playing a very prominent role in our current crisis, and who I have I don't know if I've talked about them much, but there, again, is a lot of sketchy things with the World Health Organization. You've got the World Bank. I do know that I've talked a lot about them and covered them in previous episodes as well. But basically, it's a bunch of definitely unelected organizations that are international in scope. Some are... Uh, sprung off of corporations. You have with the ID2020, you have Microsoft. That's an actual corporation. And with the Gavi Vaccine Alliance, you've got the Gates Foundation, which is you know definitely something that spun off of a corporation, kind of like the Rockefeller Foundation spun off of Standard Oil. And yeah, there, there are definitely plenty of ties here. You could draw as many as you want. But you see that, that there are the ties to the corporate world, and then you have ties to more of the experts of the world in the political and scientific realm. So you've got someone like the World Health Organization would be more on the scientific realm. Are the members of the World Health Organization elected? Well, no. Do they belong to a certain country? Well, not necessarily. Not all the same country, at least. There are people from all around the world that are a part of the World Health Organization, but it definitely... Um, dictates a lot of policy for a lot of governments all around the world. So you have an unelected group making a lot of decisions and being respected because they are looked on as the experts and the scientists, and they are influencing 
countries and politics and policies and all these kinds of things. So we see the corporate world, we see the scientific realm, we see the technicians involved with something like uh, Microsoft, the corporation, and having a digital ID in general using technology to accomplish all of these things. You also have the monetary system involved. You've got the World Bank. You've got the group that was responsible for our current Federal Reserve System with the Rockefellers. Um, You've got all these different groups that are definitely not elected. These are experts. These are scientists. These are technicians. These are the people that, if you look back at technocracy, that should be running things, that politicians are inept. They are wasteful. They do not accomplish what needs to be accomplished for an efficient economy and efficient society. And so we need these experts. We need these scientists. And we see that's exactly what's happening right now. But the global ID, ID2020, is something that uh, definitely piqued my interest with all of these names and all these different connections. But that is something that is getting pushed as well. This is a global pandemic, a global crisis, and we are seeing a global response to that and a lot more reaction and a lot more intervention being done by global organizations, whether that be corporations or whether that be unelected bureaucrats in places like the UN and branches of that. Now, you may be wondering, why are people okay with this? Because if you would have brought up these ideas, let's say 50 years ago, no one would be cool with this, with these unelected global corporations and organizations and groups making decisions for our country and our country just saying, hey, great idea. Let's go with that. Uh, Definitely not. If you want to get into this much further, you can look into what is probably the most influential report that has been written on COVID-19. And that came out a while ago when this stuff first started hitting the fan and things started getting a little crazy. There was a report that came out by London's Imperial College. And this was done by a man named Professor Neil Ferguson. Now, he is not a medical professional. He rather is a statistician, and he came up with this report that he has since revised the numbers down by roughly 50% as of now. So uh, he definitely kind of went back on everything he had said. But when this report came out, a lot of countries around the world, including the UK and the US, used this as their basically their key policy planning document where they would look at what he said, what he projected, and what he recommended that governments do to stop this. And countries just got on board with it. Again, this is an unelected expert that is basically making policy for multiple countries around the world. These are the shifts that I am talking about, and they are definitely happening. And a lot of times they don't work out so well, just like this guy coming back out and saying, oh, well, I said 1.2 million people would die in America, but you know, probably more like 500,000. Know, yes, that is still a lot, and that's still a big deal, but definitely a drastic difference. So you can look into that a little more if you want to go in deeper. That's definitely an interesting rabbit trail that you can follow. But a lot of these shifts are happening on an individual basis. And that's what I want to focus on a little more is that there are these big corporations that are doing power grabs and there are institutional players such as countries and groups like the UN, the World Bank, central banks around the world, the Federal Reserve, All of these players are making 
big changes and are doing power grabs and a lot of the stuff I've talked about. I will get into that more in the next episode. But the only reason they are able to do that and that this works is that at the individual level, individual citizens around the world are on board with these types of things. Not only are they on board, they are asking for it. So as I talked about in the previous episode with the Hegelian dialectic, if you, again, if you cause a stimulus that you know will get a certain response, a certain reaction, and then you provide the solution that you know they're going to want, or you provide the right stimulus, the right crisis that produces a reaction where they ask for the solution that you end up wanting to give them, Uh, especially if you float that solution a little earlier, you get it in the public psyche, then you can accomplish whatever your goal is if you kind of take control of that narrative. I have discussed a little bit about the mass media and some manipulation there. Uh, I'm sure that all of you are well aware of that type of thing. So controlling the narrative is something that should not be a new concept. But when you do this, you can succeed with your goals. You being someone who is wanting to steer society as a whole. But the only way to do that is to get people at the individual level. Again, that's the way to do it. So you float all these ideas like socialism, and you float it in the education system. You float it in the political realm. You get corporate leaders to discuss it and talk about it. And then it becomes a little more mainstream. Then it's a little more accepted. Then you have candidates that almost win the presidency that are 100% socialist. And so you would think that that's a huge shift between socialists being people that are traitors and communists and have no place in our country, which was the case years ago, to now socialists running for president and being the runner-up or close to it, depending on how things play out. That's a big shift, but it happens over time and it happens gradually, and it happens at the individual level. So, One of the other things that is happening at the individual level is that people are seeing that things aren't going so well. The economy's tanking. They're looking at their 401k, and they might have lost half their money. They were planning on using that to retire. That's a pretty big deal. They see that all these stores are shut down, and they are laid off, or they know people that are laid off, and people don't have a job. Everybody that was a waiter at a restaurant is pretty much laid off. You've got a few at restaurants that are doing carryout orders and deliveries, that kind of stuff. So there still are people in the food industry, but a lot of them are just getting completely laid off. And that is true of many different industries. So as an individual, we look at our community and the places we drive around to or hear about on the news, and we see that things are falling apart all around us. And the automatic response for people for many people at least, is that we want a central authority to take control, to save us, to make sure that this doesn't get any worse, and to turn things around so that things can get better. That is what people are asking for. And so if you wonder why, there's been a very drastically authoritarian response by just about every government around the world. It's because that's actually what people want. And not only is it what they want, that's what the authoritarian regimes and the uh, big groups that are highly influential over countries, that's what they've always wanted as well. You need to have something highly centralized that is in control in order to push a lot of these different schemes and ideologies and things like this. And so at the end 
individual level, people are more on board with that. They see all this stuff going down, and that's what they think the solution is. People aren't thinking that, hey, well, we need to take some personal responsibility and take control of this situation. No, at best, they're thinking, oh, my local representative should do this. The mayor, the governor, whoever, they need to implement these certain policies and crack down. But again, it's people looking for a centralized authority, a ruler to rule over them. That is the solution that many people look for. It's not, hey, I am my own authority. I rule over my own life, my own family, and I am responsible for this. That is definitely not what people are thinking. And even if they are, it goes back to the first point I brought up about people not willing to take personal responsibility they think that, well, even if I took my own responsibility and I handled my own stuff, other people wouldn't. And so we have to force those people. Even though I would do it, those people wouldn't. So we have to force them. Therefore, we have to implement certain uh, authoritarian policies. And so that's where people are naturally trending. That has been the trend for a long time. And when this crisis hits, that's what people are asking for and looking for. And therefore, that is what is happening. It is basically the Hegelian dialectic playing out in front of your eyes with all of the types of things that I talked about in season one with uh, intentional shifts in our education system, our social psyche, these types of things, and the groups and people behind that, the ideologies behind that was season one and season two talking about historically, we always have these types of shifts where we trend towards one direction, then another. There is a big bubble. There is a collapse. There are new power shifts that are happening, new paradigms that are existing. Yet this is exactly what this podcast has been covering, and it is playing out in real time. So I want to make sure that I highlight a lot of these things. Again, a lot of them are things I've said before, a lot of this stuff I've covered in other episodes, but I want to try to connect it all together and connect it to current events so that as you are seeing what's happening and what's playing out, you can draw the parallels and make the connections yourself or know what types of things, what people, what groups, what policies to look further into as you do more research on your own. Hopefully you're not relying on the mass media and the local news to make all your decisions and inform yourself. Hopefully you're doing a little more um, personal research yourself for alternative viewpoints and things that are not highlighted on the news. But if you're not, here's an encouragement to do so. So I've talked about people at an individual level having these shifts in what they desire, what they think will work, the way that basically the way that they view the world and their place in it and other people in the world. Well, this is something that does happen at the individual level, but it also happens to individuals in groups. So when you have a crisis like this that happens where it affects absolutely everyone, you get a common ideology that builds up. You get this sense of a group identity. This is something that happens. You saw this during World War I, for example. The book that I drew a lot from in my research for technocracy goes back before the main technocracy movement of the 30s. This was in the 20s with William Henry Smith, and he wrote um, a set of articles, and it came out as a book called Technocracy, and he possibly was the one that coined that term, at least he was not aware of it ever being used before at the time. And that's one of the things he focused on was that World War One was a time when you had everybody rally around each other, they rallied behind their nation, patriotism was at an all time high, you had the government take control 
of a lot of the resource allocation, out of what factories were going to produce, what people were allowed to consume. And it wasn't all just elected officials doing this. You had some experts that were making a lot of these decisions and aiding and giving advice and helping to create policy. And he saw this as something that worked really well and that he believed should happen again. And that's one of the key points that he talked about was that you have to have something that brings everybody together. You have to have this common ideology for something like this to work. You can't have these splintering off views that uh, want to focus on things like liberty and things like this and um, having more control over things themselves, but rather you need a centralized group of experts that make a lot of these decisions. Well, we see a very similar thing happening now with the current event that is bringing everybody together and involves everyone, and that is the coronavirus. And similar to World War One, we do see that there's a major impact on the economy and on corporations and on specific countries that are being hit harder than other countries. And you saw huge shifts in the monetary system after that with uh, Bretton Woods that would come up a few years later and all of these things. And really, World War One, World War Two. Uh, they were very tied in together. A lot of people say it was just one war with a brief intermission in between. But a lot of these things happened over the course of the two wars. And we see a similar thing happening here with this current crisis. There are many crises that come up. I've made parallels to 9-11 as well and to World War One and other time periods. Again, historically, there are patterns, there are parallels, and they do play out over and over and over again. And we can use that to really flesh out what's happening, why it's happening, what's likely to happen, what are the areas to focus on these types of things. And so that's what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Now, one of the other things I wanted to highlight in this specific episode, talking a little more about individual responses, is individual solutions. So it's not just problems. It's not just uh, macro trends that are happening, but there are solutions and those solutions are also at an individual level, largely. And these are solutions that, again, I've talked about many times before. To increase the parallel with World War One, you had people that planted war gardens and victory gardens. And that's something that was being promoted actually by the government itself. And people were growing their own food because a lot of production had to be steered towards the war. So the more you could produce yourself on your own, be more self-sufficient, the less consumption you would need, the less you would have to consume resources, and those resources could then be allocated towards the war effort. And so that's kind of how they did that. With technocracy, it's kind of the whole deal where you control production and you control consumption, and you make sure that you have what they call a balanced load where the two balance out, you have a good equilibrium, and that is how you have a perfect utopian society, roughly. And so that's kind of the idea. But the part that I wanted to highlight here is the self-sufficiency aspect, the growing your own garden aspect. If you go back and listen to the episodes or remember the episodes I did on agorism, that's something that I highlighted there was self-sufficiency. And hopefully you took that episode and those episodes together and implemented some of those things yourself because they would come in very handy at this point in time now as getting food even is something that is a little more difficult, a little more selective. There are some things like toilet paper that you might not be able to get a hold of very well and other things like that. So if you prepared ahead of time, 
And maybe if you got some of those ideas from the episodes I did on agorism or any individual research you had done yourself from other sources, hopefully you had implemented those before the crisis took place. I know with my family, I had ordered a lot more plants that were of edible varieties, and I have taken a lot of time that I've had off work due to this coronavirus pandemic to plant a lot of these plants. I've planted probably over 300 individual plants around my property, and we We've got two acres, so it's not like we have this giant 20-acre plot. We've got two acres, but I have tried to maximize efficiency and maximize the amount of space that I can use. So all kinds of berry bushes, all kinds of fruit trees, things like this. I uh, put in two extra garden beds planning out for this season and this year, and this was before the crisis took hold. Uh, One thing that we had planned on doing but we actually did not implement was getting up our supplies and making sure that we had plenty of supplies and storage for food and medicine or anything we might need. That's something we had talked about doing, my wife and I, and we actually never implemented. But then as soon as the coronavirus thing really started to take hold, and I think maybe right around the time that it first hit America and you had your first few confirmed cases in America, that's when I went out and made sure that I caught up on all of these things that I should have done before and uh, got plenty of stuff to have in reserve, plenty of food, plenty of materials. I got all my materials I needed for all my projects that I wanted to do at my house with the thought in mind that, well, maybe these materials will not be available or maybe the stores will shut down or whatever the case may be. I don't know what's going to happen, but if I have them on hand, I know I'll be good. And so I did. I bought cinder blocks and mulch and all kinds of stuff, all the plants that I had mentioned and got all kinds of food reserves and lots of extra toilet paper, all of these things before the crisis really took hold and people were freaking out and rushing the stores and stores were shutting down, all this stuff. I was able to do that ahead of time. So even though I did not implement things technically when I should, I was actually able to get a little ahead of the game because uh, I believe largely because I am more in tune with a lot of these concepts. I've done whole episodes on them. I've done a lot of research on agorism and self-sufficiency, these types of things. So I think more in that direction. And so as soon as I saw that there might be some issues upcoming, I went ahead and took full advantage and made sure I took care of all of that stuff. But that is part of the solution, agorism. Uh, working outside of the system, having your own systems, having local communities and local people that you can source from. We get our milk through a local dairy farm. We get our beef from a local farmer that has cattle and sells beef. Uh, Usually, he actually ran out recently last time I talked to him. But in general, that's where we get it from. We grow a lot of our own vegetables. I have planted, like I said, a lot of trees and bushes that are perennial that come back every year, and they will be producing the majority of our fruit and our berries, and we can store a lot of that and have that through the winter even. But we have increased our self-sufficiency, and this is very important. And the things that we do not produce ourselves, we know people locally that produce it. So even if a lot of the stores run out of ground beef, You still have farmers around, at least in my area, that have cows that will be slaughtering them and will need to sell their beef. They have plenty of supply. People that sell eggs and they have a bunch of chickens and a chicken farm, well, the chickens are still there. They don't care about the coronavirus. They're not getting taken out by the coronavirus. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything. So these people still have these foods, these resources, and they still need to sell them. They still need to make money. But oftentimes, these same resources are scarcely available in the stores, in the supermarkets. And so if you have these local connections, 
then you can still get all of these things that you may want or need without having to be hit by this shortage and having to ration things out quite as much. So a lot of the solutions that I would say are even more important now than they were back when I covered it originally can all be summed up in the agorism episodes that I did previously at the end of season one. That's something that I would highly recommend listening to if you have not listened to already, but implementing a lot of those things, being more focused on self-sufficiency, on taking care of yourself, on having local relationships and people that you know, building your community. If you go to a church, then get to know the people in your church and kind of apply this same mentality there. Or if you have another organization that you're uh, strongly associated with and that you see a lot, then build those relationships there. But build relationships, gain Uh, ways to get resources and ways to source things, uh, trade, barter, do these things. Because even when there's not a crisis, there are plenty of benefits. But when there is a crisis, it becomes even more important and uh, can become crucial depending on how situations play out. With all that, though, I don't want to neglect the negative side of things, the more pessimistic side that is probably a more realistic side. Although there are all of these options for solutions and for this crisis and any crisis like this to really unite people, build relationships, encourage people to be more self-sufficient, these types of things, although this is true, there also is another side that is true and is probably much more common, and that would be intensifying more of the negative sides of all of these things. So instead of people being more self-reliant and self-sufficient, taking care of themselves, stocking up, growing their own food, making their own things, these types of things, learning these types of life skills, instead of that, a lot of people are becoming even more reliant on the state. So instead of taking care of themselves, they are begging and pleading the government to give them money or to uh, put in some regulation to where their employer has to pay them or whatever the case may be, but they can't really take care of themselves. So they need, whether it be food or money or health care or something, they need all these things. And instead of trying to provide them themselves, they demand even louder and even stronger that the state provide these things for them and not only for them, but for everyone that's in need. And that is something that can be reinforced and often is. In a situation like our current situation, the state was the one that shut everything down. The state shuts down the entire economy and citizens can't earn a living. A lot of people can't. A lot of people are laid off, like I've mentioned before and like I'm sure you've seen in your own lives This has a major effect, but there is no choice here. People are forced to not work. Now, when they're forced to not work, they are forced to often not get a paycheck and not earn a living, and that makes them even more reliant on the state, who will give them those benefits, will give them that money. There's a decent chance this will lead to more of a call or maybe an actual rollout of a universal basic income. This is something that has been seen before. None of this stuff is new. If you look at the welfare system, I have mentioned that in other episodes as well, like most of this stuff. But with the welfare system, before that, people were a lot more self-sufficient and a a lot more reliant on doing things for themselves, especially the poor. They didn't really have a choice. 
But as soon as the state started filling in those roles and taking those roles away from the individual citizens, then the citizens themselves, especially the poorer classes that were getting these new welfare programs, they became more and more reliant on the state because they had this basically guaranteed check or guaranteed benefits, guaranteed things that the state was providing for them. So they no longer had to provide them for themselves. And then once they become reliant on that by the state, then they have, number one, no motivation. There is no incentive to work harder and try to learn how to take care of yourself if someone else is already taking care of you, at least for most people. That kills a lot of the incentive there. But also, once the state is providing those things for you and you are used to that, then you're used to that standard of living. Whatever your life looks like, that's what you're used to. And in order to change that, if you were to try to be more self-sufficient, take care of things on your own, you would probably take a cut in your standard of living and your normal life while you figure that out and while you get that rolled out and while you get that working. And a lot of people are not really willing to do that or very uninterested in doing that. So we've seen this before with welfare. There's a lot more aspects to that. There's a lot of racist aspects and eugenics aspects and a lot of stuff with the welfare system. But when you bring that forward to today with the Uh, stimulus checks is what they're calling it, that they're rolling out, where basically the government's just printing off money and giving it out to people. This is essentially the same thing. Right now, it is a one-time deal. There are currently bills that are being voted on for making this more than a one-time deal. And of course, the idea of a universal basic income has been being floated for the past decade or so in America and is getting more and more mainstream. You had Andrew Yang ran for president, and he was very big on universal basic income and the influence of technology on society and on the economy and these types of things. So these are definitely out there in the public sphere, and these are ideas that have been discussed. So uh, definitely something that could be either implemented in full to some degree at some point, or just another step towards that eventuality that the future will probably hold for us. But the overall point here is that people are becoming more reliant on the state. They need that money. They need that check. They didn't have savings. They didn't have their own gardens, their own food sources, their own connections. They didn't have their own things. They are drowning in debt and barely making a profit with their income. So you take a hit for a week, two weeks, a month, however long it is, and people can't handle that. They're not set up for that. And so that's that's understandable. I mean, it's not necessarily that these people are doing horrible things and are just totally dumb with their money and everything else. It's just the reality that that is our current state of the economy of individual economies of individual people and people's individual finances. Again, I've done a whole episode on that, our debt-based economy and society. And that's just the situation we're in. So when you take a big hit like this, and especially one that's state mandated makes it extra interesting, people do become completely reliant on the state because they're not in a position to take care of themselves. So this reliance is something that is often increasing instead of people being driven towards more of a self-sufficiency standpoint. Another aspect of this is the kids being at home. Public schools are closed and the kids have to stay home. Now, usually... 
parents send their kids off in the mornings. They go to school, sometimes daycare, after-school programs, sports, all these things, and usually just have a few hours in the evenings and at nighttime, and then the kids go to bed and they get up and they're gone again for most of the day the next day. And this continues for the whole week. Well, with this, parents aren't really around their kids all that much, um, relatively at least. And so since most of that time is taken up by things like having dinner and getting ready for bed and doing homework and doing chores and all these different things that kids do, there isn't a whole lot of time between the parents and the kids to really do a lot of involved parenting. Even if a parent is very interested in that, is really trying to do that, there just isn't a whole lot of time for it. And so that's something that is definitely lacking in a lot of households. And so when you have a situation like this where the kids are actually at home all day long and the parents are at home all day long, a lot of parents are feeling very overwhelmed. They're not prepared for this. They do not have experience dealing with their kids for the entire day, all day long, and helping them to learn and teaching them these types of things that they're having to do because most kids are doing schoolwork at home. And even though there is an amount of interaction with the schools, usually through video classrooms and lectures and things like that, the parents do have a lot more responsibility for working with their kids and helping them to learn the material. And that's something that a lot of parents are just not ready for and uh, often not interested in. And that makes them even more reliant on the public schools and on the state uh, often. Sometimes, you know, obviously there are kids that go to private schools and other situations, but for a generality, for the majority of the population, they go to public school. And so parents in this situation, and I have heard from many parents in this situation, they are very ready for their kids to go back to school. And they are going to be even more relieved when they do that the school system is taking care of their kids. And that will be a big relief for the parents. And they will definitely count on that. And that feeling and that association will just grow even stronger. And I would argue that's probably not a very positive thing. So instead of parents learning to build their relationship with their kids, see that there is something missing there, um, work towards teaching them and guiding them in these things and helping them learn. Instead of that, people will probably just become even more reliant on the school system to take care of their own kid. So that's not really a positive thing. Another aspect that would be just a negative aspect of this situation and its impact on individuals could be racism. That's something that we definitely saw during the events following 9-11, that there was a lot of racism towards Muslims and a lot of just automatic responses where if someone was in an airport and you saw a Muslim that was obviously someone who was Muslim and was in the whole garb and had a prayer mat, you know, all these kinds of things, then you would automatically think terrorism. Even if you're not racist yourself, that is just something that automatically pops into your mind because if you've been watching the news and you've been reading the paper and you've been involved in any kind of conversation in society, you know that the Muslims are the ones that did 9-11 and they're crazy. They're extremists. They're out to, you know, kill America because they hate our freedom. And that's what you're basically indoctrinated into through propaganda. But it automatically puts that in your mind. And that's not really a good thing. It's not that all Muslims hate America. It's not that all Muslims are extremists. It's not that all Muslims come from the same country or the same region. 
that's just not true. But unfortunately, that's the effect it did have for a lot of people. You could see the same thing with World War II and racism against the Japanese. We locked up Japanese in concentration camps, essentially. And so that's, you know, not such a good thing. A lot of Japanese people were definitely discriminated against. A lot of Americans had just an automatic hatred or dislike for people that were from Japan or that had some Japanese heritage. And that was something that carried over for years after World War II, mainly because of Pearl Harbor, which is an event I've talked about multiple times. So this could play out this time with the current crisis with maybe racism towards the Chinese people or Asian people in general. And it could be that a lot of people in other countries will look upon Asians as being dirty and disease carriers and irresponsible and these kinds of things, all these negative things that will pop into their mind, just like after 9-11, when you saw Muslim terrorism might pop into your mind. Now, when you see an Asian person, you might have disease or plague pop into your mind. They had SARS, they had the avian flu, they got the coronavirus. It all came from them. It's all their fault. You know, they're dirty. They eat bats raw. And so therefore, we don't really like them or want them around. And that is something that could possibly be reinforced, which is another thing that is definitely not a positive thing. But it does also reinforce the idea of the Western world, of the Anglo-Saxon sphere. And that's something that, as I've talked about in previous episodes, talking about especially the Society of the Elect and going back to Cecil Rhodes and the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and those agendas that were being pushed, it was largely focused on the Anglo-Saxon Western world basically running everything. And the more you have racism towards the other groups, whether it be those in the East or Hispanics or native populations or whatever the case may be, anytime you have that racism start to develop, start to build and be in the background, then that does necessarily reinforce the opposite thing. And that would be the unification of everyone that is not a part of one of these discriminated against groups. And so, you know, I would still say that's not a positive thing, but it does play into some of the agendas that I have discussed many times. So that's something to also keep in mind. Now, with all of this, you do see that close contact is being discouraged amongst the public. That's what social distancing is. And this could also have some negative effects where you have just close contact in general and everyday life from here on out being something that is frowned against and something that people are not very fond of doing. They'll keep their distance. They might not hug as much. They might not shake hands as much. There have been people that have called for never shaking hands again, that that's just a very bad idea. And that's culturally something that's been a big part of many different cultures for a very long time. And that part of that is the idea of your word being your bond and of people being honest and telling the truth and having a reputation that stands up. But those things may not really hold true in the future. And there will definitely be some cultural shifts just from this idea of having to distance from other people. There's also this aspect of encouraging a sterile, controlled environment where if someone coughs or sneezes out in public, then everybody just turns, looks, and kind of backs away a little bit and is a little bit scared. The first thing that comes to mind, of course, is coronavirus and everybody freaks out. 
Well, that will have an effect on the public psyche, where in the future, if you're out at the grocery store and someone in front of you sneezes, your first thought will probably go to germs or disease or what are they going to touch? Will they wipe it off? Do they wipe their hands? What are they doing with it? You know, these types of things. What might they have? And this is not something that really encourages relationship building at all and even being friendly and open to new people instead this is just the opposite it's if you do not know that they are clean and that they're sterile and they're taking care of themselves they're not sick at all then you probably don't want to risk it and so with that there are obviously fewer relationships being built and less contact between people and this is not really a good thing you also have just the idea of a sterile controlled environment that really floats well with the idea of technocracy where you have a very sterile and controlled economy and system of governance in general the idea with the environment and our current situation is that you make sure that all the germs are gone that everything's clean people are coming through making sure they're cleaning it over and over again every time someone comes through you wipe something down you clean it back off and you make sure that everything is completely sterile and that that is completely controlled and that you have the processes in place to make that happen. Well, with something like technocracy, it's a very similar thing. You make sure that you get rid of things like the free market and open entrepreneurship and things of that nature that can't really be predicted and that are very hard to collect data and make predictions on. And instead, you have a very controlled economy and a controlled system where you know how things are going to play out. You have these systems in place and these processes in place, and you completely control that. You dictate that. You make sure that that is reinforced, and you go over your projections and your data over and over again. Yeah, it's kind of the same concept, which is kind of interesting. It's something that came to my mind, at least. Going along somewhat with that would be more of a reliance that we have now on technology. There's more reliance, there's more trust, there's more use of technology currently because most people are staying at home and people that aren't staying at home are often in jobs where they are communicating and interacting with people through technology, whether that be conference calls and Zoom calls and uh, online classes and different things like this. People are using that so much more and oftentimes they're not really thinking of the trust aspect of that. But inherently, when you are operating your life online, you have to have some trust in whatever the platforms and companies and software that you're using. And so with that, you are increasing your trust as you use these things, even if it's not really on your mind. It's just something that happens. There's nothing you can really do about that. Now, the aspect of this that relates towards more of a technocracy type future and shift would be the fact that the more tech that's being used, the more data is being collected. And if you have more and more data, then obviously it is easier and easier to manage people and to predict people. So if you have a lot of data about a person, Oftentimes, you can predict what they're going to do, what they're going to purchase, where they're going to go, who they're going to talk to before they even do it. You can, to a degree, tell the future if you have enough data and if you have very good algorithms and maybe a good AI that's running that. And so this is a very valuable tool. But you only have that if you have all the data. And the more data you have, the stronger your predictions can be. And so... With that, we are now seeing a lot more data that's being produced because a lot more people are doing things online, which is all tracked. It's all traced. It's all collected. It's all gathered. 
So not only can people's actions be predicted in the future, but if you have people that want to steer society or maybe steer the narrative for a certain event or a certain thing that's going on or a certain person, well, if they have all this data and they know how people think, they know likely how they will react in the future, then you probably know what you can put in front of them that will cause them to act a certain way. If this person sees this ad, will they buy said product? And if you have enough data about that person, you can probably make a very accurate estimation as to whether or not they will. What if they see these certain headlines and articles about this certain candidate? Will that make them vote for them or not vote for them? Or maybe there is a certain policy that needs to get enacted. If you show them these certain video clips before they watch something else, you know, will that encourage them to get behind this bill and push their congressman or senator to vote for it? Lots of things like this that could get very dystopian and very negative. To go off of that, you could go with the social credit score as well. That's something that's already been implemented in China. A lot of things in China are kind of a test run for the U.S. to see how it works out. That's the way it seems to play out, at least. And so with that, it just makes a lot of sense. If you have a digital ID, you have a digital dollar, you have everybody used to using technology and trusting technology and everything is being tracked and traced and information gathered, all that data being used and ran through algorithms and analyzed to make predictions about certain things, about what people will buy and what to market to them, what to produce, all of these types of things. Well, if you have that, it just makes sense that you would add on some sort of social credit score. Is this person someone who has a lot of debt? You know, you already have a credit score that kind of determines some of these financial aspects. Well, why not incorporate some of these social aspects as well? Is this person someone that is a racist? Are they spreading conspiracy theories online that have been proven to be false? Are they separating themselves from society and being a social outcast? Are they deciding not to get vaccinations? These types of things. Of course, it would make sense to tie that to every person's identification and their profile. And with that, you could use that information to make decisions. Now, more than likely in the US, that would be something behind the scenes. We are not at the point, I don't believe, where people would get on board with having a social credit score. But you have similar things that are being used by many companies behind the scenes rating you as an individual as you surf the internet and as you do your things. So that's definitely not something that's you know, all that unrealistic. So that's, I think, the majority of what I wanted to cover on this episode. For more of an announcement side of things, I did want to say that I greatly appreciate those who are still patrons and are still giving money for that. I know we're getting hit hard. A lot of people are financially. And so if you have to cut back, that is fine. There's been one patron that did have to cut back on uh, their giving and their donation. And hey, that's perfectly fine. I understand if you have to completely drop out totally understand. Not a big deal. Um, those of you that are still giving or that want to uh, help support this podcast and the things that I'm doing, the research, the equipment, the hosting fees, all these types of things, please feel free to visit the Patreon page. The link is in the show notes and that is greatly appreciated. Uh, another side note is for those patrons, if you have not looked at the Patreon page lately, I have posted a few links to some other interviews that I did. And so you can look at those. And I went ahead and uploaded those directly to Patreon 
Patreon. So you can get that in your private Patreon feed, your podcast feed there, and listen that way. For anyone else, you can still access those if you know about them. So if you have been following on Twitter, then I have tweeted and retweeted the announcements of those episodes that I've been a part of. So you can find out that way. Or if you just pay attention, sometimes I mention these things, but usually I don't do a whole lot of personal announcements and things like that. So you might not get much in that regard. But uh, do pay attention. I've been on, let's see, the Libertarian Christian podcast, which I know I've mentioned, the one called Inspired by Fire. That's one that I have been on and did a short interview about some of this coronavirus type stuff when this was first really hitting things, and it came out fairly recently. There was an appearance I did on Panoptic, and they've released the first part of that interview, but I will be releasing that interview as well. That was a joint venture, so uh, you don't have to go um, and listen to that there unless you just particularly want to hear it from that source and don't want to wait. You're welcome to. So those are some of the appearances I've done, and I'm trying to do a few more interviews and uh, more things to branch out a little more and gain some more attention. So I'll try to keep you informed of that and do pay attention. Do watch the Twitter feed. I don't tweet much. I get on pretty much once a day, maybe every other day, and I'll retweet some things, post some memes that I've found throughout the day from other sources like Reddit and places like that. I'll tweet some announcements. But yeah, usually I'll get on for about five minutes a day and post a few things. So don't worry, it's not going to flood your account. I'm sure you will probably have to search for my tweets in order to find out what they are because, again, they are few and far between. But I do post things. I do post the announcements and uh, post different things like that. So do follow there if you want to keep up with that kind of thing. And if you're a patron on Patreon, then make sure you're keeping tabs on that as well because I'm posting extra stuff on there. I'm posting the interviews in their entirety. So I'm doing every part to the interview when the first section releases on on the main feed. That way you don't have to wait. You can listen to the entire interview as you see fit, even if it's a four-parter and the main feed takes a month to play out the whole interview, you can get it all at your convenience. So that's something else I've been trying to do. I think that's about everything I wanted to cover. So come back next time and I'll talk more about the institutional side of things and these institutional shifts. We'll talk about uh, politics and the economic system, the monetary system, Uh, global organizations, more about that, these types of things. And that one, I think, is the most interesting personally, and it's the one that is the most relevant to the types of things that I've been discussing in these interviews and in this season and in the previous season. So that's one that I am really looking forward to. So come back next week for that one. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for reviews and ratings. I've gotten a few of those more. So thank you very much for that. With that, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.